Welcome back to Rethinking Politics, episode 31. Today, we are going to be talking about the minimum wage. As most of you will have heard by now, the current stimulus package proposal does include a minimum wage increase to $15 an hour on the national level. That will take place over several years, so it won't be immediate, but it's a you know, a, a stepping stone process, but within a very few number of years, the standard national minimum wage would be $15 an hour. And obviously, that has caused a lot of feelings on both sides. It's something that conservatives and liberals have argued about for a long time. It's something so popular that even They Might Be Giants have a song about it called The Minimum Wage. Look it up. It's fantastic. We'd play it for you now, <laughs> except we don't want to get we don't want to get sued, not by they might be giants, but by some conglomerate, you know, record label who represents them. It's 45 seconds. It has one line of lyrics. It's perfect. line may be too much. It says minimum wage in it. I like I like how you introduce that, Brad. There are a lot of feelings about this. There goes politics again, causing feelings. <laughs> we sure wish they wouldn't. We sure. <laughs> I would like one day for politics to be such that that doesn't cause any feelings. You know, where we can just sit down and have a chat. Oh, wait, that's why we created this podcast, Dan. <laughs> oh, yeah. Look at us go. So before we talk about how we feel about it, we want to lay the scene. And to do that, we want to talk about an article that was uh, recently published in discussion about this minimum wage increase. And the article is from Politics of Poverty. We thought this was a great article for capturing, I think, one perspective on minimum wage. And the article is entitled, Six Simple Reasons We Should Raise the Minimum Wage Right Now. But before it does that, it has this paragraph that we'd like to share. It's time to raise the minimum wage. Today, millions of Americans do arduous work in jobs that pay too little and offer too few benefits. They serve food, clean offices, care for the young and elderly, stock shelves, and deliver pizza. They work these jobs year after year while caring for children and parents, trying to save for college, and paying their bills. But despite their best efforts, these low-wage and essential workers are falling further and further behind. The COVID-19 crisis has put them even more at risk, and the federal minimum wage of $7.25 an hour is locking millions, most notably women of color and single parents, in poverty. The way we see it, if you work hard, you should earn enough to get by. That's why new efforts by the Biden administration and Congress to raise the federal minimum wage to $15 to help Americans recover from COVID-19 are so important. And I wanted to share that because that, far more than the six reasons they list, perfectly encapsulates the argument for the federal minimum wage increase. It's very simple. It's that... Workers deserve more. They're not making what they should be making, and workers are not making enough to live. And that there's this gap that's growing, and these people are being locked into poverty, and the only way to fix it is through a federal minimum wage increase. Would you say, would you say that's fair, Dan, that kind of encapsulates the arguments that are being made for it? I do. This is the language around it, right? This is how people talk about it. This is how people in favor of the minimum wage discuss the minimum wage. These are the kind of terms they use. Now, so many of these terms are, are relative um, in that they things like these low wage and essential workers are falling further and further behind. Behind what? Why is falling behind that thing a problem, right? These are questions that are not answered. Um, they're more at risk. More at risk of what? Again, not specified. More at risk than who? Not specified. 
If you work hard, you should earn enough to get by. What qualifies as working hard? What qualifies as getting by? Getting by especially is one that gets me because when we talk about what does it mean to get by in the United States, it would be a very different question than if we said, what does it mean to get by in the Congo? What does it mean to get by in China? What does it mean to get by in India? Depending on which caste you're a part of. Getting by in America is an entirely different thing than getting by in some of these other countries where in those other ones it's like well are you currently starving to death no okay you're probably getting by whereas here getting by might mean depending on who you're talking to some kind of a a good living space a a, a secure job you know a 15 dollar an hour pay that is well above anything that people in other countries can get which is just it's not to point out that this is necessarily makes it inherently wrong but just to say that all of the terms and language here is so vague is to have actually told me nothing about what they think. What it does tell me is how they feel. They feel like these people are not getting what they should get, and therefore they should get more. You know, and I'm glad you brought that up, Dan, about feelings, because then when you go to the counter-argument against minimum wage, many of the main arguments are less about about facts and specifics and more about general impressions and feelings. You know, when you talk when you talk to those who are against the minimum wage, there are a couple of main concerns they bring up. The first one is almost always job loss. That if you increase the minimum wage, people will lose their jobs. And I can tell you right now that that those people who argue that don't have the statistical evidence to back it up. Most of the people you talk to, they just feel like that's what would happen. And they also feel other things. They feel that many of these jobs simply aren't worth $15 an hour, that they're getting compensated fairly for the work that they're doing. And so if you increase that amount, it means that those businesses are no longer going to employ those people. And what that means and their solution, their counter argument against minimum wage is that those people need to lift themselves up. They need to go to college. They need to find a better job so that they can make more money instead of working where they're currently working. Those are the, the two sides of the argument. I think you've summed it up really well in terms, of, in terms of what you're going to run into on Facebook and Twitter and what you're going to read if you Google for these things. Now, there are, of course, larger arguments under it, right? There are economic, there are sophisticated economic arguments for and against the minimum wage. And in what it actually does, and we're going to talk about what it actually does, but those are not the things usually that are persuading people one way or the other. Most people do not have access to those and do not understand those things, nor are they going to look into them, right? They, they're pretty confident in their opinion, whether whatever it's based on. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up because you may have noticed as we're discussing this that there's an inherent disconnect between these two arguments because the, the pro-minimum wage argument because the pro-minimum wage argument's sole purpose is to help those in poverty, is to lift people up who are making below minimum wage currently. Sorry, not minimum wage, the new minimum wage, below $15 an hour currently. The counter-argument is that those people would lose their jobs or a large number of them would lose their jobs if the minimum wage was $15 an hour. Now, only one of these groups can really be right. You <laughs> right, know what I mean? Right. In if, terms of what it actually does to the world. If right. if there is a large amount of job loss because of raising the minimum wage, then a minimum wage will not help those in poverty. 
And if it doesn't create job loss and it does help those in poverty, then it it nullifies most of the counter arguments, right? And so before we get too far along, we want to discuss what actually happens in terms of economic theory. So modern economic theory is at an interesting place. We're basically Keynesians at this point. And what Keynesianism, and by, by we're, we don't mean us, and by Keynesianism, we mean we've accepted the premises of engineering economy to produce jobs and all these other things, and that government can do that in a variety of ways. Yes, if you go out and talk to anyone who understands economic theory, they will strongly argue against the idea of them being Keynesian, and yet most of the most popular economic theories in the United States today, both in academia and in the general public, are grounded in Keynesianism. Those are the fundamental ideas that move through all of those systems. And within that school of thought, there are a number of reasons why you would want to increase the minimum wage. One of them is as a stimulus. Poor people spend more money on raw consumption. People with extra money don't always consume it. They often, they often put it into investments, they save it, they do other things with it. Uh, they turn it into hard assets for a business or, or there's a variety of things you can do with money that is, some, that is better thought of as some form of investment. It of course makes sense that those who are closer to the poverty line are not going to invest and save because they simply can't. There is no option. When you are only making enough to once again use their words earlier, get by, then by definition, you're not going to be saving and investing that money if there's no extra. You have to have that extra first in order yes. to invest yes. or save it. Yeah, that's a good point. We're not suggesting that it's because the rich people are smart and the poor people are stupid. It's a, it's a, it's a problem of what do you need? <laughs> and if you have things that you need, you spend the money there rather than spending it on things like investment. And so getting money to the poor gets money flowing. It gets money moving through the economy. And so things that do that in Keynesian thought is inevitably going to create a kind of multiplier effect, a, a way to stimulate the economy. The minimum wage is one way to do that. Your tax returns, which will be coming in the near future, is another way to do that. Right? They, when people talk about tax returns, they don't go, so what are you going to invest your tax return in? <laughs> they go, you going to get a new TV? Okay. What are you, you, know, you, you going to do with it? What are you going to spend it on? And there have been presidents and leaders who've suggested that it's your patriotic duty to go and spend that as rapidly as possible. Now, for reasons that we're not going to get into at length here, the whole idea that consumption is the key to the economy is nonsense. And you can tell that by simply looking at your own family and what would be wise for you. Should you always spend every dime you get as fast as possible? The answer is, of course not. Well, what about your community? Should your community spend it at every, every dime they get as fast as possible? Or your extended family? Of course not. Should your state do that? Of course not. But somehow, we get big enough and it's like, oh yeah. The key now is that everybody just sense. needs to throw. Now it makes sense. And, and when you think of it in that way, it should be obvious that there's, there's some fundamental problems with that idea. For the purposes of this podcast, know that stimulus, giving the poor extra money, is considered a boon to the economy. And that's part of what is factored into this idea of raising the minimum wage. But more important is this idea that we've opened up with of how do you help the poor? How do you get people who are making money to make more money? and people who are stuck in poverty to be able to climb, right? And if the minimum wage isn't going up, and businesses have an interest in paying their employees as little as possible, 
Then at the bottom, you can help everybody at the bottom by just raising the floor, right? You raise the minimum higher, and that will help the people at the very bottom. And will, of course, help everyone else out through this stimulus effect. And that's, through the stimulus and effect. And that's kind of the underlying argument in how to pay for a move like this is twofold. Number one is that many businesses already have large profit margins that at least in the, the short to medium run can be eaten into to pay for these increases without hurting the businesses. You know, you have these multi-billionaires is the argument who are running these businesses who can suffer a little bit and still be just fine in order to allow for these increases. And then in the long run, the stimulus effect of this increased consumption will make up for the increased costs. And before you know it, everyone in all economic classes will be benefiting. But the fundamental difference being now those at and below the poverty line are making a better living wage and are thus in a better position than they were previous to the minimum wage. Right. That. Thank you. That's a really good description of the multiplier effect. That you've got these people who now have more money in their pocket. They go and they spend it at the stores. They spend it at the on different things that they need or different things that are entertainment. And that in turn creates more jobs or puts more money into those those industries, which they can then spend somewhere else. It's it's the the water running through the pipes, right? And yep. clearing everything out and helping helping everything. The spark that gets the engine going. The problem is that when you talk about businesses that way, the, the businesses have a, a certain amount of money and you can get them to spend more of that money in consumption causing this effect by increasing the minimum wage that they may have money they could spend on this that they're spending on something else might be true in some businesses. But which ones? And how do you know which ones? And how do you know it's the businesses that here at the bottom that are paying minimum wage? That is all guesswork. And if you're wrong, the ones that can't afford to do that, you're going to put people out of jobs. And this is what inevitably happens. There's, there's shifts, and we'll talk about the studies in just a moment on that subject. The other thing is that even if they can, how sure are you that that's where they should be spending that money? Because they're not just sitting on it. No one's like hoarding money under their bed. We have this weird idea of like a billionaire has this money. And it's just like in a room and he swims <laughs> through it occasionally, right? That this is, this is what, what it means to be, to have a hundred billion dollars is you have these rooms of cash. And of course, that's exactly. not how it works at all. They don't have a lot of liquid cash. What they have is stock that gives them say over companies. And what that means is that what they don't have is a bunch, is $200 billion worth of houses or $200 billion worth of cars that you could just split among other people. What they have is decision-making power in a company and say in its direction. And you can't split that up in a way that other people can then consume. Yeah. You can't split the value of a factory that produces cars into houses without cutting out most of the value of producing cars, right? The value of production is that it produces. And to split that into pieces is not to make it more. It's not to give people more houses or more money or more wages. It's to kill the thing that's producing the very wealth we want more of. The irony is that by, by hurting things that are producing and splitting them up into consumption, you produce less next year, right? If you, if you, if instead of using your shovel, as a tool for digging, you break it into pieces to burn as firewood, you no longer have a shovel, and you no longer have this increased ability to work in a certain way. So 
by diverting whatever the businesses are spending the money on, which is likely business-related, other business expenses and other business assets, to paying their employees more, even if they can, you may be hurting their productive efforts in the future, which in the long run does you harm. Yeah, there's going to be a cost. You know, to speak more a little bit on that, first of all, some people may be thinking, yes, you know, Jeff Bezos, his money is in stock. You know, he has $200 billion in stock. Why can't we just divide all those stock among all of the employees? And the answer is very simple. You absolutely could. And then those employees would, would sell half of their shares and the the value for Amazon would crumble. The investors would stop investing in Amazon. Amazon wouldn't be able to grow and could potentially even collapse. You know, Amazon, as we know it, could break down and disappear because of something like that. Because right now what happens is there are $200 billion worth of Amazon that's owned by Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos, and more particularly Amazon, because Amazon's the one who's using that money, is using that money to invest and further the company. Just like any of these other companies are using the income they have to further the company, open new stores, develop new technologies, as well as pay employees and a thousand other things. And as soon as you stop doing that and start using the money for something else, there's going to be a cost. Yeah. And obviously in the extreme example, if you if you take all of that money or a huge chunk of it, there's going to be ramifications. There right. always will be. Right. You liquidate a significant amount of stock in a company and that first off, the value you get out of it is much less because you're not using it for its productive purposes. You're basically trying to consume it. And that will, as you said, have massive ramifications on the company and it won't be as valuable to the people selling it as it is to Jeff Bezos using it for productive purposes. Because productive tools should be used productively. Now, as far as actual job loss goes, does the minimum wage cause job loss? The answer is yes. Yes. Now, you can go and you can Google and you will find studies that say the answer is no. And that complicates this. I don't want to pretend that that's not the case. But if you do a study of the studies, if you look at all of them and you start to say, why, why do some say yes? Why do some say no? You're going to quickly find a few things. Number one, the studies that say the studies that say there is no job loss are often looking at too short a span of time. They're not looking at the lead up. They're not looking to the years that come after. And they're often looking at, at specific industries instead of looking at the bigger picture. I'm going to quote from a study of the studies. Right. Some, some studies are, are doing actual research work where they're trying to figure it out. Not actual research work that makes it sound like the other ones are not. They're, <laughs> they're collecting the data and they're providing an interpretation. There are other studies that try and make sense of the data that has been collected and the interpretations that have been made, which is why it's called it a study of studies. This one was from 2006 looking at, was, it was trying to take into account the fact that there were these new studies claiming that there was not unemployment loss. Quote, our review indicates that there is a wide range of existing estimates and, accordingly, a lack of consensus about the overall effects on low-wage employment of an increase in the minimum wage. However, the off-stated assertion that recent research fails to support the traditional view that the minimum wage reduces the employment of low-wage workers is clearly incorrect. Let me pause there for a second. So there are mixed results in some of these studies, as it's saying. But they do not disprove the assertion, the, the traditional view that minimum wage reduces the employment of low-wage workers. Of low-wage workers. Of low-wage workers. <laughs> that part is stable. It does. 
it does reduce the employment of low-wage workers. I'm going to go back to the quote. A sizable majority of the studies surveyed in this monograph give a relatively consistent, although not always statistically significant, indication of negative employment effects of minimum wages. In addition, among the papers we view as providing the most credible evidence, almost all point to negative employment effects, both for the United States as well as for many other countries. They then make two other conclusions that I want to mention. First, we see very few, if any, studies that provide convincing evidence of positive employment effects of minimum wages, especially from those studies that focus on the broader groups for which the competitive model predicts disemployment effects. Second, the studies that focus on the least skilled groups provides relatively overwhelming evidence of stronger disemployment effects for these groups. Close quote. This is from the National Bureau for Economic Research. The paper is titled Minimum Wages and Employment, a review of evidence from the new minimum wage research. The minimum wage hurts employment among people around the minimum wage. And this, this is, in some ways, the most common sense conclusion imaginable. If, <laughs> if a business is, exists, has low profits, right, they're, they're, they're getting by and they're paying people at minimum wage. And there's, there's businesses getting by paying employees at, at every level. But if there's a minimum wage paying business that is just getting by and you force them to pay more, that business is likely going to close. And those jobs are going to be lost. Now, the resources can be taken up by someone else. People can buy the property, can you know, use the equipment for whatever the business was, and try and make a better go of it, and maybe we'll be able to pay people more. Maybe. But that business is gone. You are closing businesses. People are losing jobs. And part of the reason there are different studies that seem to disprove this argument is because... The market is so complicated, and when you look at any isolated incident or isolated groups of incidents, it can be easier to find whatever result you're looking for. You know, with minimum wage, one of the very first obstacles is what happens when you raise a minimum wage to a level that doesn't actually increase how much people are making in the vast majority of cases. So what am I saying? I'm saying if we remove the minimum federal wage of $7.25 an hour right now, how many businesses would lower their pay? How many across the nation? Very, very few. In fact, <laughs> I, would, I, would, I would guess none, but it's possible that some would. No, and I'm sure there are industries and there are, there are a few places where that would actually make sense. But for the most part, Businesses are already paying $7.25, and in fact, in many places, most places, paying more than $7.25. You know, when I was doing research for this art, you know, for this for this discussion, I found that the people that were going to benefit from this, most of them were in the middle of that group. You know, they weren't making $7.25 going to $15. They were making $9 or $10 or $11 or $12. Yeah and moving up to $15. Yeah, there was a study in 2017 that found that 99% of people or we're making more than minimum wage. That's in 2017. And so they have these studies that look at certain industries within certain cities that have raised the minimum wage, you know, one, two, three, four dollars above the federal minimum, and saw what happened. And the numbers aren't always clear because, like I said, first of all, they may already be paying more, these companies. Mm -hmm. Second of all, when you only look at particular industries, you don't always see the ripple effect that occurs. You know, because when you increase the minimum wage, it's not just the businesses that you're looking at that have increased the minimum wage that are affected. For example, here in Salt Lake City, 
most of the best jobs for those who are entry level are in the warehouse industry and in the construction industry. And those all pay more than $15 an hour. And they pay entry level anywhere between $15 and $18 or so dollars an hour is the average. You know, somewhere mm-hmm. around there is how much you start working there. You know, and it's manual labor. And then most fast food places vary from $8 to $12 an hour. If all those fast food places and Smith's and Walmart and all these other places started paying $15 an hour... And you were a manual laborer making fifteen fifty an hour, there would be a large incentive for you to leave that manual labor job and go work for, you know, McDonald's or another company that was easier than moving boxes all day or working at a construction site where it's dangerous all day. Right. And now all of a sudden, these companies that technically aren't being affected by the minimum wage law are going to be hurting. They're going to have to either raise their wages or reduce their workforce. And it's as if these companies are having to raise their their minimum wage. You know what I mean? It's almost as if a minimum wage increase was placed on them. Right, right. And that obfuscates things. It makes it more complicated because you can't just look at the businesses that you think would be affected. You have to look at those next businesses. Right. And and that would apply nationwide if you increase the minimum wage to $15 an hour is there's going to be a ripple effect about all the jobs that pay anywhere close to that. Right, even comparing different restaurants within within like fast food, working at McDonald's versus working at something like Chick-fil-A or In-N-Out Burger. If you've ever been to either of those places and watched how efficient they are, I'm sure there are other names we could add to that list, but the <laughs> there first off, it's amazing how many people can work effectively side by side in a small area. <laughs> you, look at, you look at them like, yes, how many people is. do you have back there? Then you see how many customers they can serve and how quickly they can do it and how well they can do it. And they're paying their workers more than McDonald's is because they want a worker who's a cut above the average fast food employee. They're looking for someone who's willing to work harder, who's more reliable, who's going to be more consistent, who's got better customer service, right? They're off. They're trying to offer a superior product. And to make up for the the wages, they have to serve more people. They have to have more customers. They have to be more effective. And all of this allows them to pay more and allows them because it allows them to make more money. Now, if you force the pay up to $15 an hour, which is outside of the range of both McDonald's and I assume these other places, then for the most part, (laughs) then, well, someone who could be super productive may just find it easier to work somewhere else, right? Their pay is now the same because can't afford to pay more than 15, you've then cut out a lot of the incentives for them to move around within the industry by raising the floor too high to have var- variation. And one of the effects of this is that as most of the time, the jobs aren't just lost, right? You can, you can still do stuff with the, with the equipment, but there's a variety of answers to, to filling the hole left by a business that's gone. You can ship jobs overseas. You may have noticed that's a big problem here in the United States. Like it's a huge problem. And this minimum wage thing, I can only imagine help with right, I can only imagine how many places are going to be outsourcing their labor because of that. Automation is on the is on the increase. With a $15 minimum wage, your incentive to automate just went through the roof. It's going to now be yeah. way cheaper if, to invest in that technology. That if if you have to pay people $15 an hour anyway, you might as well automate in a lot of cases. 
Now, often they just reduce the workforce. There's a funny anecdote. You may have heard this, Brad, about uh, Bernie Sanders. And he was, he was paying his interns below 15. Did you hear about this? He's, no. he's paying his interns less than the minimum wage he was trying to pass. I don't remember if it was $15 no, or if it was an older one. It, because the way it worked, it, he was paying them that much. But then he was having them work more than 40 hours and they weren't being compensated for it. Um, mm. And so when someone went after him for it, he, uh, he changed what he was doing. And what he did is he just had them work less hours. And this is yeah. a very common thing that happens with uh, wage rate increases, right? They may be getting paid more, but they're then working less hours and they're getting by with less employees to do any given thing. And it, of course, makes sense. You know, it makes sense as a business – if you're going to be paying $15 an hour and you have 30 employees, one option is to reduce the number of employees and get by with less. And you keep the employees who are performing better, who yeah. are better at their job yeah. in a hope to be able to produce as much. Because in many ways, that's, as Dan said before, that's the Chick-fil-A and in and out model is that they have employees who are getting paid more, but they're also working harder and are thus able to produce more. And are therefore worth more. And so you could raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour and you would have companies who might try and emulate Chick-fil-A in and out by doing the same thing. By having a smaller workforce who is expected to do more and accomplish more within their shift. Instead mm -hmm. of having a McDonald's that has eight employees who are casually going through the work, they now have six who are working very, very hard to get that work done. But now you have two people who are no longer employed at that McDonald's. Right. And you have to be more careful in your hiring. You're going to have to, you're going to have to find a way to find better people or more reliable people. This is the other thing that just gets me about this is that often people think the minimum wage is, a, is basically a way to get more money from the, from the business owners, from their profits and whatnot to the workers. Businesses are going to raise prices. If at the end of the day, you can't recoup that cost in other ways, the sandwich that they're making is going to be more expensive. With such a significant change, I would be shocked if we didn't see that in most of the fast food places. If they have to pay more for the same thing, you're going to have to pay more for the same thing. When we talk about taxing businesses, you can't tax businesses. You can't. You, there's no way to tax businesses. Businesses are made up of people. And those people are going to be paying. <laughs> if you're going to tax those people, they're going to pass it on to the customers. They're going to pass it on to the employees. And that's that's just the way it works. You can't suddenly, you can't seize it directly from their profit fund and not have them recoup it some other way. Those costs were going to come somewhere. As you said, there's, there's trade-offs here in each of these things. And if, and if they have to pay more, they're going to find a way to make it up. If you think for a minute that the end result of this minimum wage increase is that all of the billionaire executives are going to look at their personal bank accounts See, what do I got? Okay, I got my $200 billion here. I'm going to take half of that and I'm going to have to spend it on wages now. You know, it's rough, but but I got to do what I got to do. That's not going That's to happen. Ne it's not. There, there, <laughs> there may be a couple of particular instances of a small business owner who's dipping into his, yes. into his own funds to make payroll, to cover yeah. the increased costs because it's their personal business and they care about it. But that's going to be the outlier, not the norm. As Dan said, the norm is, is that businesses are there to make a profit and they're going to do whatever it takes to make a profit or they will close down because there's simply no point to be in business and lose money. 
No one's going to do that. That's That makes no sense. Yeah. Just like it makes no sense to have a job and lose money. A business is the same way. It's a different kind of job for the owner where they're able to make money off of the business. If they can't, then they won't do it anymore. Right. They'll switch to different areas. They'll invest their money in different ways. Yeah. Yeah. And so the point we're trying to make here is that, yes, it's complicated. The job loss is not as clear cut as it's often described when being discussed. It's not going to be immediate, first of all. And it may not be in the in the industries you expect it to be in or in the ways you expect it to be in. And it may not even be a large amount of job loss. It could be other things. It could just be price increases. Maybe everyone keeps their jobs, but now everything costs more. Mm-hmm. Are they better off at that point? As we're talking, Brad, I keep thinking that underneath the arguments for minimum wage is a very good thing. There are people who want to help the poor people, people who are struggling. That's awesome. The minimum wage will not do that. That's the problem with it. The problem is not that it's going to hurt business owners and business owners should be able to do whatever they want. It's not It's not any of these other straw men that I think liberals <laughs> often throw up there when they're arguing about the minimum wage. The problem with the minimum wage is that it doesn't do what it's trying to do. It ends up hurting the people at the bottom rather than helping them. It ends up pricing people like like teenagers, especially, out of jobs. And so the question, of course, then becomes, what is a better alternative? Before we get to that, I want to make one more point about how it hurts those who are struggling. The people who are working these jobs usually tend to be less skilled, or they tend to be in a position where they can't get a better job, for whatever the reason is, whether it's the economic climate or the area they live in. Whatever it is, this is this is what they're stuck with. And the problem is, is that if you increase the minimum wage and you require these businesses to charge more and it forces them to no longer employ these people who are already marginalized, they're already on the edge, right? These are these are already people who are struggling. How does that help them help them out? Because really what you're doing is you're making work illegal for these people is you're saying, hey, you had a job where you were making $9 an hour. You were willing to work $9 an hour for this company because you couldn't find anything better. Otherwise, you would have taken that better option. Now we're going to take away this option and say, now we're only going to have the better options. We're only going to have the better options, the $15 an hour jobs that you couldn't get before. And that's just going to further marginalize the people who are in poverty. That's just going to further push people who are on the edge of poverty deeper into poverty. It's going to force more and more people into unemployment. I mean, is is the end result. You know, whether it's through unemployment, whether it's through it increasing the prices of things, all of these things are particularly hurting those who are in the bottom percentages. Yeah. Those more than any other group are going to suffer from this. Those who are making $100,000 a year are not going to get hit nearly as hard by this as those who are making less. It causes the additional problem of in order to climb, you need work experience. You need to be able to have a work history. And so to to go from making $9 an hour to making nothing, not having a job, is even worse than losing the income. You're losing, you're often losing future opportunities as well. So if you want to help the poor, first you need an accurate vision of what 
of what poverty is like and what wealth mobility is like. And as I talk to people about about what they think needs to happen to help poor people, I don't feel like the image they have of poverty and people in poverty is very clear at all. And to begin with, I'm going to mention a few statistics to try and paint a picture of it. I'm going to begin by repeating one of the statistics I mentioned earlier. 99% of people do not work for a minimum wage. So if you have in mind the idea that without increasing the minimum wage, the pay never goes up, obviously there's a problem with that. It did go up for 99% of people. And that's assuming those people have stayed in the same job, right? It's probably like 99.999% of people because people don't stay in the same job generally forever. But 99% of people right now, and by right now I mean 2017 when this study was from, <laughs> clearly that's what right now always Right four means. years ago. Right now, four years ago. Now, even the people working for the minimum wage are not a stable category. There was a study done to see how people change from different wealth categories to others. They, often they divide it into quintiles. You've got the bottom quintile, the bottom 20% of people versus like the top 20%, you know, and they talk about wealth inequality. Well, if you look at the bottom 20% over a 15-year period, how many people do you think in that quintile, in that 20%, are still there 15 years later? How many, Dan? 5%. 5% of them are still there 15 years later. 95% of the people in the bottom quintile, 95% of the people we might consider poor, are not poor in 15 years. Which means if you're thinking of the poor as like this group of people who are, who are always there, who are constantly yeah, this, this, there. this class of people in the normal sense that are always there, and they were born poor, they're going to stay poor, they're going to be poor tomorrow, you've got the wrong image in your head. In fact, more of them are going to be in the top 20% in that 15-year period than remain in the bottom 20%. 56% of all American households are going to be in the top 10% for wealth in the United States at some point in their lives. I'm going to repeat that. 56% of all American households are going to be in the top 10% at some point in their lives. That may be because they just inherited, a, you know, got a house from their parents who died, or it's almost always when they're old. And Dan, I think this is important to bring up because, because right now, the idea has become more and more common, more and more prevalent, especially among younger people, that the U.S. is being broken up into classes. Yeah. And there's this idea of what we need is, is class warfare, really, not through violence, but through government action to restore balance between these classes. I mean, that's in many ways the Bernie Sanders movement and why ideas like his have become so prevalent is because people fundamentally believe that there is us and there is them. There are those on the bottom and those on the top and that these categories do not really change. Right that the 1% stays the 1%, that that we at the bottom stay at the bottom, and there's not that movement. We believe that 100 years ago, yes, you could go and you could make the American dream, but now that's not really a possibility. And those numbers that you're presenting, Dan, really fly in the face they of do. that. Those numbers are saying, really, when you're fighting against the, the middle class, you're fighting against your parents. When you're fighting against more of the upper class, you're fighting against your grandparents, that those are the people who, who have wealth or those who have earned it through their lifetimes. And the real barrier, the real reason that you are not wealthy is because you haven't worked yet. You know, you don't have 
you haven't had the time to accumulate that <laughs> yeah. wealth because wealth takes it time. Does. Yeah. You know, most people aren't billionaires in their 20s. And part of the reason I think things have become more distorted is there's been so much coverage of these billionaires like Jeff Bezos, of these tech startups who make billions, these get-rich-quick schemes, as we feel like that's the only way to make money is through these ridiculous things or nothing. Yeah, these you know, ridiculous it's all things that happen to almost no world. one. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, what, what we keep hearing stories about are the uber-rich and the uber-poor when the vast majority of people are somewhere in between. Yes, you may not become a billionaire before you die, but it is very likely that you will become a millionaire before you die, that you will have hundreds of thousands of dollars to your name. That is very likely. It is. Mm -hmm. As Dan said, 56% of all American households are going to be in the top 10% at some point in their lives, usually later on. Yes, you may not have a private jet before you die, but the odds of you having a very large house and several cars and living comfortably are pretty good. Even if you start, even if right now you're in that bottom 20%, mobility is still alive and well in the 21st century. Yeah. It's just we're not focusing on it. You know, our attention is drawn elsewhere. Yeah, and you'd say in some ways, a lot of people would call that the American dream, right? Is the American dream alive and well? Can you be better off than your parents and can you accumulate some of these things? And the answer is yes. Statistically, it's yes. Yes, you can. You suggested it. And we've mentioned it in other podcasts. The, sh the biggest predictor of wealth is age. The older you are, the more likely you are to have wealth. That, to me, is a really good sign. When that stops being the greatest predictor of wealth, we're going to have problems, right? Because, because someone who has time to get education and get experience and to work their way up a ladder and all those things should have more than people who don't. Not shouldness. I'm not saying in some kind of like just way, but in general, that they're more, they're likely, more likely to in, that they are more likely to makes all the sense in the world, and that's perfect. That seems to me to be perfectly fair. That indicator, right? And it's a better predictor of your wealth than whether your parents were wealthy. Now, if you were, want to know what the most unstable when you were talking about those quintiles, the bottom is extremely mobile. You know who else is extremely mobile? The top. The top is by far the most mobile group. And the higher up you want to make it, you want to make it the top 5% or the top 1%, the more mobile it becomes. Which is to say, it becomes increasingly likely that they will become relatively poorer as they go on. Which again shakes one of the big one of the myths here, which is that people get to the top the and 1%. they're there forever. They are not. That is the group that is least likely to remain where they are. And again, that to me says, well, there's so much, there's so much that's broken. <laughs> As you've, if you listen to our podcast, you get an idea of that. But that, that at least looks right. That looks right. That should be the most marble group. That should be the, it should be really hard to stay on top. If you watch any competitive sport or any competitive thing at all, it should be clear why to the people who can actually do that are extremely rare. And as Brad was saying, we draw so much attention to those few that it creates an, an image and a story that simply isn't true. Simply isn't true. It's extremely rare for somebody to get on top and to stay on top. And you know their names. But did you know that you know all of their names? <laughs> right? You, you know all of their <laughs> names, probably. Because there's so few of them. 
There's so few of them because it's so hard to do and so unlikely. If all of those things are working, if the people who are poor now, who are making minimum wage now, are very unlikely to be making minimum wage in the future, who is it exactly that we're trying to give the living wage to? Now, there are some people that fit this description, people who maybe have a family, are working for minimum wage, and will be working for minimum wage for a long time and maybe for the rest of their lives, maybe for 30, 40 years. But those cases are extremely rare. I'm glad you brought that up, Dan, because a lot of people believe that they are in poverty, that they are the poor, when they're really not. I have people who, who you know, work in my warehouse who are making $18 an hour plus who consider themselves bottom of the barrel. You know, they say they are just barely surviving and trying to make ends meet. I know people who are making $70,000 a year who say, yes, we, we're just barely making it. We're just barely okay. Because, and once again, it has to do with, with where we focus our, our attention and how everything is relative. When you look at your $70,000 a year and you look at someone making $600,000 a year, yeah, you'll absolutely feel poor. But that doesn't mean that you are not well off. It doesn't mean that you're more well off than people were 20 years ago making $200,000 a year as as technology hasn't improved our lives. It's interesting for me, Dan, because because here I am, I'm making, you know, under $50,000 a year and I feel rich. I feel amazed at the resources that I have, not just technological resources, but but we go to the grocery store and we're we're not just able to eat every day, but we're able to eat things that we like to eat. You know, almost always we're able to make meals that we like. We're able to eat out. You know, we have two vehicles. You know, I'm able to go to work and Savannah, my wife, is able to to stay at home with our kid and pursue other areas that aren't necessarily making us money right now. You know, right now she's able to go back to school and pursue her dream and we're able to do that financially. And it's amazing. It's amazing what we're able to do. And yet when you look at how the federal government runs their numbers, you look at how people talk about it, you know, with us being a household that's making under $50,000, we should be considered very close to the poverty line. We're above it, but we're not that far above it, that we're the struggling family that needs the help. And I just don't feel that way. But it has to do with perspective. And so a lot of people who say, yes, we are the struggling people, I don't want to say you're not because everyone struggles. I struggle. We all struggle financially. But right now, I think the idea of what getting by looks like is insane. We're talking about over $100,000 a year for a household is getting by. That's how people look at it. When they say getting by, they mean they want to have everything everyone else has, basically. And that's just not <laughs> practical. That doesn't make sense. No, that's not. The poverty line is entirely arbitrary. Once you get beyond like this person, if they don't get food and shelter, is going to die. Once those things are, are secure and you're getting those regularly and will for the foreseeable future, anywhere else you decide to draw the poverty line is going to be arbitrary. Absolutely. It's going to be entirely arbitrary. And as you said, it's, and sometimes it's, some ways it's a question of, it's a question of what you're looking at and what you're comparing yourself to. Whenever I hear about people trying to propose welfare things in the United States, I think of what that money could do 
and what those resources could do for people who truly have nothing, people who are working all day and will never have all of the wonderful benefits that even a homeless person in the United States could get. They could walk into a shelter on any given day in most places and find a place to sleep. And there's, there's a number of other issues with the homeless and why they're homeless, right? But in terms of poverty in the United States, it is even the poorest are so much better off than even most people in some other places, even the wealthy people in other places. So, so when we talk about these terms and how relative they are, it just, you have to be, it's you, crazy. you have to be looking, you have to be very closed off in your vision to feel like people in the United States are getting by. I remember, I remember the day when I realized that, you know what, by federal standards, I am in poverty as I was a student and I was just talking yeah. to some of the other students with me. Like, we're all in poverty. And everyone's like, that's, that's weird. <laughs> yeah. Because we were, we were able to do what we want to do. <laughs> the, the, I think we've got, we've got a, a couple of points. The main point we're trying to make here talking about this is that how we view poverty is, is fundamentally inaccurate. And, and most of the people who are in poverty are not that permanent class of people who are going to be stuck in poverty. That there's mobility, there's the ability to change how much you're making and to make more in the future. And that even as you're making less now, it may not be as bad as people make it out to be for most people. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't people who are struggling, who are really struggling and who do need assistance. And this $15 minimum wage is not the solution. There are a number of solutions that are better than this one. Yeah. yeah. So I and my fellow students at that time should not be the target of any efforts to help the poor. Yeah, any any efforts to help the poor that are spent on Dan King going to school are wasted. <laughs> are wasted. Are truly wasted. Are truly wasted. Right, right. I'm not I'm not impoverished. I have everything I need and want and more. Even though I'm making a, a fraction of what the U.S. government during that time would have said I needed to be making, considering I have a wife and children. And so who are the poor, really? It's if you place them as the group of people making less than X, something is wrong already because you're going to have every teenager who doesn't yet have a career. You're going to have every college student. You're going to have everybody who's transitioning from one thing to another. Like These categories, none of these are addressing that that very, very small group in the United States who really are struggling and are going to be struggling for many years in the future. And that's the, that's the real question you need to ask is why are they going to continue struggling? Not why are they going through a rough time or why are they, you know, what's these, those details. Yeah, that's why, a different why are group they with stuck a different at this level. Why are they stuck? Yeah, it's why are they stuck? And does the minimum wage help address those problems? I don't think it even sees it. I don't think it's even aware that that, 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 that that should be the question, right? That that's In order to solve the problem, you first have to see the problem accurately. And that's something we simply aren't even coming close to doing with this discussion on minimum wage. So our solution, we talked about what do we do to help these people first. We have to figure out who these people are instead of just looking at these, these artificial metrics that don't capture it at all. And then once you're able to find out who these people are, you have to figure out the why. 
why is the situation the way that it is? And then you can start dealing with the issues. And as you look at that, you will find that a number of the reasons that they're stuck in the situation is because of the many, many market distortions that have occurred in the United States that have made it difficult for them to be mobile, to change what they're able to do. You know, we've talked about licensure before. Licensure is just another form of monopoly that keeps people in certain economic brackets. And I, I truly believe that. How the school system is set up is another way that limits what people are able to do. Yeah, a lot of the intergenerational problems are are products of, of terrible education systems rather than poverty leading to more poverty. It doesn't. Yes. There's, there's tons yes, of mobility. The, 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 the public school system itself is another issue that we've already talked about that addresses these people who are stuck in these certain situations. And those are just to name a few. There's more things that you can do. If you're talking about what the government can do, there's more things the government can do that would be so much more effective than a $15 minimum wage. Right. They could they can start by not screwing things up so often, <laughs> right? So often the problems are are of their creation. Let me just point you to something fun that we discovered while we we're doing this. You know Norway, Denmark, Switzerland, Sweden, these uh places described as democratic socialism. <laughs> even though they hate the label themselves because often they're recovering from socialism. And <laughs> there's one place uh, after it was called democratic socialist socialism by uh, Bernie Sanders again with Bernie Sanders. Um, he, the president got really upset and was like, we are not socialist. And he didn't like that label at all in part <laughs> because they had gone serious socialist some decades before that and had massive problems and were in the process of turning back towards markets. Norway, Denmark, Switzerland, Sweden, all places in European, in Europe, obviously, they have, uh, they compare well in terms of pay in industries to their neighbors. None of these places have a minimum wage. No minimum wage at all. Yeah, it's very surprising. If a minimum wage is essential, tell me how are they getting by without it and generally paying more than their neighbors in comparable positions? Why are 99% of Americans not working at minimum wage if minimum wage is such that... Is the only thing keeping them from being stuck in those lower wages. That myth, that idea that it just has to increase occasionally to keep pace with inflation and these other things, seems to me to be entirely false. Otherwise, you've got to explain why Norway, Denmark, Switzerland, and Sweden, to name a few, not to mention the fact that, as we said, most of America, are getting paid more than that. There is a pressure to increase wages, naturally. And of course, if we didn't have silly inflation all the time, thanks to the Federal Reserve, this would be a very different conversation anyway, because things would be getting cheaper instead of more expensive. So to wrap up, the minimum wage is based on a really good idea of helping those who are in need, but it's fundamentally flawed in how it executes it. In number one, many additional market distortions that actually make things worse than the poor. Number two, not understanding which people are actually struggling and thus failing to help those who are truly in need. And finally, through the job loss itself, potentially hurting those who actually are truly in need. And with those three reasons together, there's just no case for it. It's, it comes down to the same thing as, as our discussions on inflation, that the reason minimum wage 
is ever successful is because it sounds so good. We all want to make more money. It's such a reasonable idea to want to make more money, and it capitalizes on that. But what we really want is not to make more money. What we really want is to be better off. And the minimum wage does not help with that, not even a little yeah, bit. It really capitalizes on the bias that we discussed of, of the people who've, who've accepted a lot of the, the assumptions underlying communism and, and socialism, the idea that at the end of the day, the employer is ripping you off and you've got to get that money back from them. And this is government coming to help you do that. It doesn't even begin to do that, as we, as we mentioned. It doesn't. Yeah. You, can, you can't do that through this kind of a mechanism, and it help. It hurts the people that it's trying to help. And we've talked about that before. That there are market distortions, there are forms of monopolies and things like that. And the solution to fixing those is not by creating more government regulation, but is instead by addressing those issues as they stand. If there's a problem, we need to address it head on not apply a band-aid solution and that's really what this minimum yeah. wage is yeah if there's injustice you you stop the injustice you don't say well we can give you this we can throw you this bone yeah yeah you don't compensate the victims you stop the injustice and with that thank you for listening this has been episode 31 of rethinking politics you can find us on all of the major podcast apps we just made it onto pandora we were finally accepted after waiting for months and months and you can reach us at a rethinking politics podcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our website at rethinkingpolitics.podbean.com. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and reach out to us with questions, comments, and tune in next week for another episode. Have a great day. Take care.